Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. I'm speaking today with Tim Desmond. Tim is a distinguished faculty scholar at Antioch University, teaching professional psychology rooted in self-compassion. After a troubled youth, Desmond was exposed to Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings and eventually studied at Plum Village. He is the founder of Peer Collective and co-founder of Morning Sun Mindfulness Center in Alstead, New Hampshire. He was also a co-organizer of Occupy Wall Street. Tim's publications include Self-Compassion in Psychotherapy, the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook, and the 2019 release, How to Stay Human in an Effed Up World. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks. I'm uh, very happy to be here. So your 2019 book title is so intriguing. It reminds me in a certain way, um, when Pema Chodron was first publishing, um, her book, When Things Fall Apart, I remember mm. talking to her publisher at the time, and they were also my publisher at the time, and they were very concerned. They said, well, that's like a bad title, you know, like yeah. you need a title that has like happy, 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 you know. And, yeah. And uh, of course, it was like such a massively successful book because she knew things are falling apart, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's people's real experience. Yeah, my my editor, so uh, Harper actually bought a different proposal from me. Oh, um, I, I had I had planned to write a book that was something like mindfulness for people who don't meditate, mm-hmm. um, and they liked it. And then Sydney Rogers, who is my editor, she was like, "So this kind of feels a little like neat, like niche. If uh, if you were going to." write a book for everybody, then what would it be? Like, like what would be sort of like your uh, message if it was like to the broadest possible audience? And it was just like, yeah, it's about how to, how to stay human, how to stay connected to what's alive in us and kind of what uh, the, the love and compassion and reality in us in all the situations that we go through in life. That's fantastic. And can you say something about the Morning Sun Mindfulness Center? Because it was such a, a cheery name. And oh. I would have to say Morning Sun is not my favorite site. I'm <laughs> a real night owl. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. So I was living in Oakland and um, uh, I was actually running a program, uh, for, like a day treatments program for seriously emotionally disturbed kids. Mm-hmm. And um, Oakland was getting kind of expensive and all of my friends were, you know, really busy and working so much. And then I had two good friends who had just left being a monk and a nun living with Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. Um, so th- there's uh, Michael and Fern, uh, they were engaged to be married when they showed up at Plum Village. 
they decided to become a monk and a nun instead. Mm -hmm. They lived a a monastic life for nine years Mm -hmm. and then they left to get married. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So they had just had their first kid and they wanted to create a new practice center for lay people. Mm -hmm. And so they asked me and my wife if we would kind of come and help them start it. So we left the Bay Area and we fundraised and bought 240 acres in um, like outside of Keene, New Hampshire. So it's like we're we're about maybe an hour and a half north of IMS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was, so the Plum Village style is, uh, it's a retreat center where you're inviting people into kind of a lived in community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're like, well, let's, so that, well, that's that, that, those are the monastic centers. Like it's like, it's the monastics, they live there and they're inviting you in as a guest to kind of take part in their life. And so we're like, well, what if we did the layperson version of that? Like a sort of an intentional community that houses a meditation center. And so that's what, uh, what we've been building. That's fantastic. What's the Pure Collective? That's a, yeah, that's a long story. That That's like, um, okay, so... Yeah, it, it, it's uh, the idea of Pure Collective is comes from a vision of anytime somebody is struggling, if you could just connect with a person who has exceptional empathy and compassion and presence, mm-hmm. um, and if we could make that as easily accessible and affordable as possible. Uh, that's kind of what we built. And there's sort of like a kind of a long story there, but um, but ultimately it's it's online peer counseling with like really kind of carefully vetted people. And we're really uh, developed this way of vetting people in terms of their capacity to to be compassionately present when someone is in a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, did you, uh, was there a moment in time that sort of turned you toward meditation? How did you come to be a student of meditation? And how is that infiltrating your work? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Boston uh, with like a single alcoholic mom. We were poor growing up. Um, I was homeless for a while when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually only got into college through a sports scholarship. Um, Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have got in. But by the time I got to college, I was, you know, I had a lot of anger and loneliness. um, And it was actually in a political science class that I was assigned a book by Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm. And it had such a deep impact on me. Like it was so clear that the, what he was talking about were the exact qualities that were missing from my life, a type of um, confidence and presence and compassion and love. It was like, that's, that's what I want for me. Um, And so as you know, as, as 19 year olds sometimes do when Mm -hmm. they're, 
when they see something that makes sense, I just dove in completely. Um, and so really for the next 10 years of my life after college, I was kind of going back and forth between whatever large grassroots demonstrations were happening. Um, so the WTO movement, the Iraq war, um, through Occupy Wall Street. And I would um, be involved with helping to organize whatever large demonstrations are happening. And then as soon as those were over, I'd go back to Plum Village or whatever mm-hmm. monastery Thich Nhat Hanh was at and just follow him around. Um, and I've spent about 10 years like that, just kind of, um, yeah, kind of just like chasing Thich Nhat Hanh around in his uh, kind of never ending tour. Uh, and then whenever there was, uh, you know, some, some grassroots demonstrations happening, I'd leave and go help. And then what, what happened was, and then how that led to clinical psychology. I remember I was on a, a three month retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh uh, at Deer Park Monastery mm-hmm. uh, outside of San Diego. And I, I just kind of remember being like, I need a way to earn some money because I've been living on next to nothing mm-hmm. and like sleeping on people's couches. And so I basically decided to do grad school for clinical psychology as a way that kind of felt like maybe it would be an extension of what I was really interested in. Um, so there were a lot of ways in which the field of clinical psych didn't fit well with my background in meditation mm-hmm. in some ways that it did. And I think probably the biggest one is um, a, a really a fascination with the research around what, what drives outcome mm-hmm. in mental health. It's just like the question of what, what's the active ingredient that transforms suffering? Like mm-hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh will always talk about you know, compassionate presence is the energy that transforms suffering. And that um, the, you know, when you kind of wade through all the statistical analysis in clinical psych, again, it comes down to the personal qualities of the provider, like empathy and warmth and alliance. Mm -hmm. And like they call common factors, because it's like the, the, the one thing that all these different schools of therapy can agree are important. And so like what my life has been about in in a lot of ways is like um, teaching meditation uh, as a way of helping people to develop compassionate presence in themselves Mm -hmm. and then peer collective as a way of trying to create a resource Mm -hmm. because for, for so many of us, and especially when people are going through something really intense it's really hard to do that for yourself. It's uh, uh, mm-hmm. like with the, I mean, especially people who haven't had years of training in a monastery to be able to bring that kind of compassionate presence to really intense suffering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That That's really what kind of uh, drove me to want to create a, a service like this. That's wonderful. And I, I do think, um, uh, I'm intrigued about the self-compassion part of it. And yeah. part of what came up in my mind was actually um, something I talk about sometimes when I, I wrote a book called Faith, yeah, which was about like my own faith journey. And it came out like 18 years ago or something like that. Yeah. And um, in the book, I talk about a conversation I was having in New York City with a psychiatrist friend of mine. And, and um, 
the conversation was about what's the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship. And, and he said, love, he said, if you put any good therapist up against the wall, they'd have to say love. And what I said was, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that someone showed up for their appointment. Yeah. You know, which is like the self-compassion part. It's like yeah. something gets us out of bed. It has us try and has us willing to be different, take some risks. And that's what I was calling faith as I was working yeah. on the book. And so then the book came out on my birthday. Yeah. And I saw the psychiatrist in the in the room as yeah. I was preparing to read. So I read that passage about that conversation. Yeah. And he came up to me afterwards to get his book signed. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about what you said. And it's not faith, it's love. You were wrong. <laughs> so I took his book and I wrote in like giant letters, it's love, exclamation yeah. point, exclamation point. And then somebody gave me a birthday party and he came to the birthday party. So he came up to me at the end of that part of the evening and yeah. he said, you know, I've been thinking about it all night. And you were right. I was yeah. wrong. <laughs> you know, so I said, give me back the book. I'll resign yeah. it. And so, of course, this is not just one thing in that singular sense. But um, I think there is such a lot involved in the fact that we show up, you know, unless yeah. it's like a court mandated date with a therapist or something. But even in court mandated, like the in the clinical literature, we call it expectancy. Mm -hmm. right? and, and it's uh, yeah, like. So one of the way, so one of the things that I love about Peer Collective is it, it really comes down to faith and love. Like I, I can talk with you about how we uh, vet people because I think it's kind of fascinating mm -hmm. how you actually mm -hmm. like like do that. But but when we're training people, we're basically uh, what we say is the most whatever you do. So the the your your first responsibility is to, to, to try to understand and love the person who's coming to you for help. Um, like that's basic. Just try, try to, to understand and, and try to see the beauty in that person. Mm -hmm. And then whatever you're going to offer, the most important thing is that it makes sense to you and it makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. And so, and then, so we don't, have like manualized treatments or, or that kind of thing. And we, we offer people a lot of different resources to kind mm -hmm. of continue to learn about. And, you know, this is one way to do it and this is another way to do it. But the way that you should do it is the way that, that makes sense to you because that's what instills faith. Mm -hmm. um, and actually part of, that's one of the, the factors that we look at is sort of, um, when when we're kind of assessing people, is that ability to believe that healing is possible, mm -hmm. or and like because and in, in the you know in in the beginning of the the metta sutta, you know they um, there's that that thing about like um, needing to uh, you you sort of remind yourself of the 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 benefits of loving kindness mm -hmm. and the uh, the dangers of hatred and remind yourself that you also have this Buddha nature. Yeah. And so it's like, before we're going to practice anything, we need to, we need to be connected with, well, why is this, why is it worth doing? And then a belief that it's possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I fully like, yeah, I think that 
faith and love are, are, are wonderful things to be um, dedicating our lives to. And I'm thinking, you know, about just the power of knowledge. Like if I was an individual and, and granted, it's very hard to have like a completely loving presence yeah. in the face of intense, intense suffering. And, yeah. and yet there are probably moments even within that, that we can, it's just not sustained, you know, and, yeah. and moments of other kind of life experiences where I think if we could just remind ourselves, you know, that, uh, we have a capacity to grow, yeah. to change, to connect. It it would make a difference all in and of itself because then we would maybe get over, you know, embarrassment or yeah. uh, laziness or, yeah. you know, uh, other kinds of challenges and, and actually see what we might be able to cultivate either within ourselves or with other people. Uh, or in a in a more professional relationship with somebody and and realize that there's a lot that could be possible yeah and and it it like in my life i know it it just i feel like it takes so much training and mm-hmm. attention and um commitment mm-hmm. to deepen that belief and to to keep coming back to it and to keep mm-hmm. coming back to like being able to see what's possible and and to be able to see the world clearly. And that, so that, that actually comes back to like, so for at, at peer collective, um, we, I would say like philosophically, we believe that it is absolutely possible to develop a compassionate presence in yourself. Mm-hmm. But we also believe that it takes a lot of time and, and energy mm-hmm. to, to change that. And so, what what we seek to do is to basically find people who are already exceptional mm-hmm. at that and then give them kind of the additional training in peer counseling rather than believing that we can kind of take anybody and train them mm-hmm. and once mm-hmm. they've completed the training that they'll they'll have those qualities because it's just yeah I I mean I love Richie Davidson's research and all the uh um he actually wrote the forward to my first book, mm-hmm. um, you know, about the the neural impacts of training ourselves in compassion. But mm-hmm. um, but it, but the the reality, at least for for me, it's like it takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication to to make a, a noticeable difference. And so, what what we want is is yeah to find people who 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 can offer that. And, and it's interesting because um, when I was writing about self-compassion, a lot of uh, my Buddhist friends are like, so, you know, Thai never uses, Thich Nhat Hanh never uses the term self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I know. And he's like, so how, how do, why do you teach about self-compassion knowing that there is no self? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, for me, it's this idea that like, compassion is the energy that transforms suffering and it doesn't matter where it comes from. Mm -hmm. It can come from the non-self elements in me, you know, like the, 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 like what I, what's been transmitted to me from my teachers and Mm -hmm. from the fortunate conditions in my life, or it can be transmitted to me from other people kind of Mm -hmm. directly. And it doesn't matter like, you know, the, where the source is, it's just, it's when the energy of compassion comes in contact with the energy of suffering. That's, that's what creates transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you Google 
a term I'm told, uh, or what I've seen is that Google will offer many options because they think they know what you're actually searching for. Yeah. Because so many people have previously searched for that very thing and yeah. told that if you enter compassion, you will get fatigue right away. Yeah. Because you know, so many people are talking about compassion fatigue. And, yeah. um, and it's something to really take apart in a way and, and try to understand more fully. I mean, I do think people can have, um, I mean, the very fact that people might undertake a discipline or a practice and, it doesn't always go that well, you know, or seem that great and that they can persevere um, uh, or that they can begin to frame things in uh, actually paying attention. Like a very important question can be, how do I learn? Yeah. You know, and then just pay attention. Like what happens as a result of those like endless harangues, you know, yeah. about myself and yeah. how how much wherewithal do I feel to start over and, you know, make a make a resilient return. <laughs> um, probably not very much. And what happens when I kind of give myself a break and say, well, this is part of the human condition and what do I have to learn in order to do better, but not yeah. kind of there's a self-identification. Like I am only that person who said that stupid thing in the meeting. You know, yeah. like that's who I am, you know, and so we're we're kind of working against that, you know what? But At but that perseverance, I feel like, comes from faith. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Um, like I can say in my life. So my first meditation teacher was someone, um, her name is Joanne Friday. She lived in Rhode Island where I went to college. And she ran a Thich Nhat Hanh kind of sangha near, uh, near my university. Um, and she actually, like, um, she was really deeply moved and changed by one of your mm. Valentine's day retreats. Mm -hmm. she, she did a, an IMS Valentine's day retreat and just like, she, she felt like it really opened up her understanding of what mindfulness is. Mm -hmm. Like she came mm -hmm. back and she said, you know, I, I just realized that all Thich Nhat Hanh talks about is love. Oh yeah. That there's, there's nothing, there's nothing else that's in the practice. Um, and so I just wanted to, you know, appreciate you about, uh, about that. So Joanne, for me, was someone, she passed away really recently. Mm. She was someone who, anyone who met Joanne would say, she loves me as much as anybody that I've ever met. Oh. And, and it was like that, like, when, like whenever I was like, wait, is this the right practice for me? Should I be doing something else? <laughs> this, you know, whatever. I would come back to this worked for Joanne and I want to be more like her. Mm -hmm. And it was just like to have that grounding and like, I want to be more like these people that, that I know who've been influenced, you know, who, who have such deep practices. Yeah. It's that, you know, and I've heard you talk about this too. It's like, you know a thing I want to know. Mm -hmm. And once you get that, you just like, you can just let that be your anchor. And that that's what helps you persevere, at least for me. Well, you're actually reminding me of this time in 1979 when the Dalai Lama came to visit here. I'm talking to you from Barry, Mass. Yeah. I'm next door to the Insight Meditation Society through the woods. And uh, in 1979, 
we we were already open. We opened in 76, and we heard that the Dalai Lama was coming to Amherst, which is not that far away, and giving a series of teachings. So we were young and brash and naive, and so we sent off a letter to the private office saying, well, why doesn't he visit us too, you know? Mm-hmm. And he said yes, which was really a startling thing. And so mm-hmm. we had to prepare for a visit from the Dalai Lama, and um, it was like this very zooey scene, you know, with mm-hmm. uh, for us a tremendous amount of security, like state troopers patrolling the roofs with guns and things like that. And and you know, the Dalai Lama came, and we gave him a tour, and we had lunch, did these various things, and then we had a retreat that was ongoing. So. He went into the meditation hall to give a talk and he gave the talk. And at the end of the talk, they asked for questions and somebody raised his hand. So he'd been meditating for about two weeks, this young man at this point, Mm -hmm. intensively. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I've decided that this just isn't going to work for me. Like nothing's going to work for me. I just don't have a capacity. I don't have it inside in order to to change and, and to understand things more and so on. And, and the Dalai Lama, there is a particular look he gets on his face when he's thinking, what are you talking about? You know, mm-hmm. and, and he had that look. And this was his first trip, I believe, to North America. And he just looked at him and said, well, you're wrong. You're just wrong. Yeah. Uh, which was a little terse, but actually it was yeah. useful. The kid, you know, he liked it. In the end, I talked to him, of course, yeah. afterwards. But, um, you know, it was just like, how could you kind of think of yourself that way? And so there are all kinds of ways of reassuring somebody, you know. Um, yeah. Um, but it was it was the main message that I think he and we all needed to hear. It's like, well, yeah, you have a capacity, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's like often when mindfulness and, and compassion and things like that are translated into the clinical psychology world, sometimes that the, the element of faith ends up kind of can be missing. Like mm-hmm. it's not like, like what you were saying. I feel like sometimes clinical psychologists can know about the optimism and like that, that understanding of like faith, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. but, um, but when we're bringing in practices, like there needs to be some type of faith or trust or confidence that that benefit is possible mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yeah i feel like that's like the w- ways of doing that i mean that's that like like for me yeah for me it, it it's like how can we keep in touch with the uh in touch with the buddha nature that's in people mm-hmm. I was talking with a good friend, Fapo, who's a um, monastic who lives at Deer Park. And I was telling him that I was going to go to grad school in clinical psych. And do you have, does he have any advice? And he said, when you're talking with someone and they're in a lot of suffering, um, never lose touch with your own Buddha nature and never lose touch with their Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you can stay with that, then you'll be able to be beneficial. And so that was like, I, I realized for a, for a lot of the, um, that's not part of our training at Peer Collective. It's, it's mm-hmm. a little too, uh, too Buddhist, yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. But, but it's like, but, but it flavors it. Cause that's really what we're looking at is just like, yeah. Um, like 
seeing that whatever someone's bringing, it's like the energy of life in them is trying to express itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this brings me to our time, which is so intense. And um, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, part of what brings people is this kind of faith or this openness to the possibility of their own capacity. And part of what is bringing people to seek help of all kinds yeah. uh, for anxiety, for depression, is is just this deep yearning to feel better. You know, it feels so bad and yeah. it's gone on for so long. And, and people who might have poo-pooed certain tools or psychotherapy yeah. or whatever, hopefully are more willing to seek help because... Um, that impetus can also be channeled. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like, yeah, that, that's the, the, you know, that's the gift of suffering, right? Like that's the, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, mm-hmm. talk about it. it. It's the the compost from which flower, you know, like if, mm-hmm. if you don't have compost, you can't have flowers. Yeah. Um, and it's this idea that like life gives you garbage and if you don't know what you're doing, the garbage is just going to fester and stink and ruin your life. Mm-hmm. But if you have some skillfulness, you can turn garbage into compost. Mm-hmm. And then that compost can become flowers. And this idea that like any, any positive quality that we have, like any patience or compassion or love is is there because we know suffering yeah. because we've experienced suffering and and like so being able to see like anything like uh so my 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 mom I will be would be fine with me saying she's been in AA for you know more than 30 years mm-hmm. and you know there's like this and you know I I grew up kind of going to AA meetings with her and going to Al-Anon and all that kind of stuff and um you know, there's this like gratitude for being an alcoholic in the sense of like, cause it brought me to recovery mm-hmm. and it's like being able to see that, like, obviously there's a huge voice in my mind that's like, Hey, you know what? The world would be much better if there weren't any suffering. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, uh, like in many ways, that's like kind of what the human mind is all about is like coming up with ideas about how to re- reduce suffering. Mm-hmm. It's like this idea factory for like, Hey, you know, what would create less suffering. Try this, you know, it would create more joy. Try this. Um, and then at the same time, recognizing that a world without suffering would also be a world without any of the things that we feel like are beautiful and virtuous. And, um, so like seeing the, the, the suffering in our world right now and seeing that as like this invitation to be able to turn toward healing Mm -hmm. and connection. And I guess that's, that's at least my hope for it. Well, I mean, certainly otherwise we're, we're like stuck, you know, um, it is so painful. And I think, uh, you know, some of what you're saying, I think really depends on one's understanding of compassion because yeah, uh, it's so deep and so subtle and so powerful. I mean, obviously your life as an activist is about trying to reduce suffering. 
Yeah. Um, oh, but I think, and that's what the thing that I love. Like, like I, I think that acting to reduce suffering is, is like what what makes us human. Mm-hmm. Like, um, one one thing that I like to bring up when I'm teaching, uh, when I'm teaching meditation is is teaching um, the meta meta phrases alongside the five remembrances. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that Thich Nhat Hanh translates the five remembrances, I sort of put them together in the sense that, you know, I am of the nature to grow old and have ill health. And yet, may I be healthy. Mm-hmm. Like I am of the nature to die. And yet, may I be safe. Like I am of the nature, you know, um, everything that I love and everyone that's dear to me is of the nature to change. And there is no way to escape being separated from them. And yet, may I be happy. And it's what, what I love about putting those two teachings together is like there's kind of the ultimate dimension or like the, the, mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. the, the existential reality. And then there's like this expression of 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 your human nature like the existential reality is like i'm going to have ill health and die and yet it's this expression of my nature that wants me and other living beings to be safe and well Mm -hmm. and there's no uh there's no conflict there yeah yeah. they're both very true they are both true and part of what happens i think is that words like healthy and safe, they change meaning. Yeah. You know, it's not precisely the conventional meaning, which is part of what frightens people, you know? Yeah. Like, like, uh, it's wishful thinking and it's magical thinking, you know, that if yeah. I can say it loud enough and fast enough, I won't die, you know, yeah, it'll exactly. be okay. Yeah, you know, like, like, remembrances will go away and leave me alone. Yeah, exactly. And it, of course it's not at all like that. And yeah. the whole sense of what is health and, yeah. Um, what is safety? It it changes so considerably in the process of opening to it and and to the possibility of offering it. Because really, what we're doing is offering a blessing to ourselves and to others. And we just do that in ordinary language. We don't say, you know, may you psychophysical conglomerate yeah. of heaps of changing elements, you know, yeah. be at peace. You know, yeah. we say be peaceful. Yeah. <laughs> you over there. Well, and but I and I think that this relates for me a lot to activism too, in the sense that um, over the years that I've been involved in different social movements, the people who believe that they're going to solve the problem of suffering mm-hmm. through political organizing and that like human beings won't if like if we can just build this movement enough, human beings won't suffer anymore. They don't last. And mm-hmm. the people who, in my experience, the people who last and like stay engaged and stay on the front lines for mm-hmm. a long period of time, they're the people who are doing it as an expression of their nature. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get, you know, um, you know, pepper sprayed and I'm going to be like, like put my body on the line or I'm going to, so like, you know, like, uh, um, wake up in the middle of the night to field, you know, whatever crisis calls that are mm-hmm, happening mm-hmm. or wh- whatever it is. It, it's not because I think that 
okay, if, if I take enough crisis calls, people won't be in crisis anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm doing this because this is an expression of my deepest nature. And it's what, and like, when I listen to what my heart really wants, like, this is what it wants. It wants to be there for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. beings who are suffering. Well, I think those acts, even those seemingly small acts that aren't going to totally resolve some horrible issue, you know, that they also return us to a place inside ourselves that has some inner abundance or at least sufficiency. And it is whole, you know, we don't feel like, oh, no, you know, I'm at a loss now. I'm at a deficit because I reached out and thanked somebody, you know, it's not like. It's not like that at all. It's actually a very powerful tool for our own transformation. So I'm wondering how people are approaching you these days. Do they, do they find you because of the book, because of the, um, the collective? Yeah, I I think so. Um, I, I, I still do teaching and I'll, you know, and I, and I'll, uh, lead retreats here and there, but so much of what I'm focused on right now is, is pure collective. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it's really this idea of, um, I, I just, I just want compassion. Mm-hmm. I, I want compassionate presence to be readily available to people who are suffering. Mm-hmm. And so we've developed this way of basically, so, uh, myself and Bruce Wampold, who's a, um, um, clinical psychology or counseling psychology researcher, uh, develop this kind of assessment process. And basically what happens is we use it to identify non-professionals, just mm-hmm. who have exceptional capacity for providing uh, emotional support. And, and the, the idea that, that, I, that, I, that um, the, the interesting part for me is it, it's based on the idea that compassion and emotional intelligence are contextual. Um, And so specifically what we're trying to do is measure warmth and um, uh, understanding and empathy and and the ability to build and repair alliances in the context of trying to support someone who's suffering. Mm -hmm. So we we have this series, uh, when people are applying, they go through a series of simulations of all of these really kind of uh, challenging moments that they might face as a peer counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a, a, a real variety of them. You know, the, uh, the first one is someone who says like, so you're acting really friendly, but you're paid to be mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. So it feels phony. And then they respond. We take a video of them responding to all these different um, prompts like that. Um, but the, the thing that, that, has been really interesting for me is like, we know that um, some people have a lot of emotional intelligence, like at a cocktail party, mm-hmm. you know, they're really good at like making friends and, you know, having witty remarks and, and they have like a lot of awareness there. But if you're going through a divorce, mm-hmm. they're not the person you want to talk to. Mm-hmm. And then it can be vice versa. Like someone who's like not good at cocktail parties doesn't have that type of emotional intelligence, but they have a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence when you're suffering. Mm -hmm. And so what we're trying to do is put people in that context and then sort of measure their capacity to respond. 
And then um, that allows us to kind of tap into, there are so many people out there that are really good at this and Mm -hmm. they want to be of help. Um, And then there are so many people that are suffering and they don't have access to compassionate presence. And how, how would, like, let's say I was living alone. I was feeling really isolated. I was getting kind of desperate. I'm really suffering. How do I find this person? Uh, that yeah, you have trained, you know. Yeah, so, so you probably most most people right now are finding us. You you go on the internet and you type like uh, anything from like yeah, like uh, I'm depressed or mm-hmm. uh, you know like um, you know like talk to someone about anxiety or whatever, and then you find Peer Collective. Um, you just go to peer and you end up on PeerCollective.com, and you're able to connect with somebody, you know, um, a 30 minute session is $14 mm-hmm. and a 60 minute session is 28. Um, and so we do that basically cause we want to provide a living wage mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to people who are like in the care, well, we, the, uh, the phrase that I really liked, uh, um, recently is the caring economy. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. So like we want to develop, <laughs> what's that? It's like people like I Jen Poo who are organizing, uh, domestic workers who are caregivers. Yeah. 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 So we want to support the caring economy with real living wage jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and at the same time, we want to make it as, as easy and affordable as possible for people Mm -hmm. to get help. And so then what you do is you would answer a couple of questions about yourself, a couple of questions about the type of person that you believe again, that you would have faith in Mm -hmm. that might Mm -hmm. be good, uh, good for you. And then you'd, choose a peer counselor and you can often talk to somebody within the hour. Do you have other sources of funding that are? We're, we, we, we have a, yeah, we have a, we have a handful. We have a, like a little bit of investment. Um, but yeah, so, so it, uh, we have, a, yeah, we have a little bit of investment. Um, if anybody wants to help grow this, mm-hmm. one, one thing that I'm really excited about, we've had so many teenagers trying to use peer collective mm. Um and so we're we're offering them each like one free session, uh-huh. but we don't have enough money to kind of yeah. make it available. So we're we we'd like to put together like a scholarship fund specifically for teenagers because oh. we're finding so many teenagers reaching out to us. Um, so that's that's one thing that I'm kind of like hoping for uh-huh. in the next few months. You know, what you're reminding me of is actually a conversation I had with Tim De Christopher on this very podcast some years ago where he's an environmental activist and uh, he ended up in jail for a couple of years after an act of nonviolent civil disobedience where he actually, I forget exactly the circumstance, but something like he bid on some land in a government auction that he actually didn't have money yeah. to pay for, but he, he bid on it to keep it from being, um, you know, drilled in yeah. for oil. And so, uh, nobody thought he was going to actually get jail time, and he ended up going to prison for two years. So, yeah. Um, and I was sort of following him on the internet and yeah. uh, just reading about his case. And when he left prison, um, he went to Harvard Divinity School. So I was naturally very interested in him. Like, yeah. Who are you? And uh, I think he was just about to graduate when we did the podcast together, or maybe he'd taken a leave for a while and. Um, was then going to go back and finish something like that. And anyway, we did the podcast in the course of it. We, we got into the, this conversation about 
Like, what if you were the person who was directly harmed by somebody? You know, what if you have really uh, been in that situation? And and we we flipped into this part of the conversation where we were both agreeing, like, well, you know, maybe your job in that moment is to survive or to grieve. It's not actually to be cultivating compassion per se yeah. for this other person. And yeah. feel the pressure of that, you know, is is yeah. so unfair. And then Tim said, that's why we need a compassion core. Because yeah. maybe you, the person who has been so directly harmed, can't do it. You shouldn't be asked to do yeah. it. But maybe someone can. Yeah. And that this too will bring about a kind of healing in the world because it's also in a way it's necessary. Yeah, that's that's really what we're trying to do with with Peer Collective is this thing of like if we can so that that's in order to be on the platform, somebody needs to be able to be a kind of exceptional at all of these different scenarios mm-hmm. of being able to have openness and presence and compassion um for someone who is really angry, someone who's really uh, sad, someone who's, you know, just basically who, who's in a crisis of faith who's saying like, how the fuck can you help me? So like, like how, how can you help me? Um, and, and yeah, just like trying to grow that energy and like make it available um, in the world. Yeah. That, that's that. I think that's a, that's a really beautiful vision. Yeah, it's tremendous, and it sounds like it's it's very compatible compatible with what you're yeah. you're bringing into the world. So, let me just segue for a minute before sure. I ask you to lead a sitting um, to the book. Oh yeah, your most recent book, which I think yeah. is is interesting to talk about. Yeah, do you want to tell us what's in it? And- yeah, God. Uh, uh, when my son was about um, two years old, my wife, Annie, was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she lived about three years and she passed away about two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was writing this book during that as like mm-hmm. a way of anchoring myself in practice. Mm-hmm. And so really it was like, like, I, I heard you talking about like your, uh, you were, you were finishing, uh, your, uh, like finishing a book, like right after the, um, the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, so I that, love. <laughs> yeah. So the, the combination for me of, um, the, I don't know, like the, like the despair. Yeah in the political world and the sort of just um, what we sometimes call, we call it like the, the long crisis or the long emergency in my own life of, of mm-hmm. you know, like three years, like just like someone mm-hmm. going through terminal cancer for three years yeah. and, you know, raising a young child. Um, and it was just like, okay, so it, the, I I came to practice with Thich Nhat Hanh having overcome a lot of difficult situations. But then for a lot of my 20s, um, kind of getting into my 30s, I I wasn't like I I was kind of giving a lot and I wasn't all that challenged. Like Uh I was 
you know, I was spending a lot of time in monasteries and then, yeah, I'd go to jail, but it wasn't like I'd be out in a couple of days, mm-hmm. um, you know, at whatever demonstration I'm at. And it, it didn't, re- it never really felt like, like a trying to my practice. And then this, it was like, okay, so how do I take what I've learned in the transmissions from Thich Nhat Hanh and my teachers and how do I apply it to the the kind of the depth mm-hmm. of challenge that's happening personally and politically mm-hmm. and the the book is just kind of a reflection on that of like let's let's figure out how to apply practice even when everything is falling apart mm-hmm. yeah so well, that's that sounds like for our yeah. time actually yeah thanks i mean it's really uh um, and it's also very, you know, kind of wonderful that you were that that open and that and that vulnerable yeah. in that in that time. You know, it's very hard in the midst of a really traumatic situation. First of all, to reach for those tools and yeah. and to use them, and then to be able to describe it is yeah, it's a really tough thing. Yeah, I, I think there's time. I don't know that I would have been able to stay anchored in my practice mm-hmm. if I wasn't. It, like, like I don't know if you feel like this, but I feel like sometimes teaching is one yeah, of the best of ways yeah. to to be like, you got to practice because you're going to yeah. be teaching. Yeah, yeah. And in a very active teaching, it just like reaches the best part of you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think it was like that. It was like, I, I need to I need to turn this into teachings because I don't want to like there, there's a danger in just sort of not trying to apply my practice. So are those the kind of tools that you're also offering to people as they reach out for help? The same ones that you used? Yeah, well, so at Peer Collective, like um, I offer uh, like um, a lot of training to our peer counselors but ultimately what it comes down to is, is I want all of our peer counselors to be their authentic selves mm-hmm. and to utilize whatever practices work for them mm-hmm. and to make sense mm-hmm. for them. And so it's like, there's definitely, I, I think I, I sort of made a, a decision like not to try to be like, Hey, every, I want people to, I want people to do counseling the way that I would do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I just don't believe that that's like, you don't believe you get the best from somebody. I think that like, what you want in a relationship is authenticity, especially a healing relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, yeah. So, so there's like, there's definitely lots of people who are on peer collective who uh, have, have a lot in common with. Um, and then there are other people that, that really come from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About how many people do you have actually volunteer or working? Working. Yeah. Yes. So uh, right as of today, we have about 50 peer counselors and we've had about a thousand users um, but we're growing by like 50% a month. So, um, but yeah, like a few weeks from now when this comes out, it could be more. That's great. Well, may those teenagers get served, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, so lastly, I'm wondering if you would mind leading us in a guided meditation just to close out our conversation. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and I also just want to say like, thank you, Sharon. It's been lovely to talk with you. It's lovely to talk to you as well. So let's... Um, Let's find ourselves in a comfortable posture with eyes open or closed, whatever feels more comfortable. 
and just settling, settling into your body, settling into this moment, coming back to your body right here and now. Breathing in and breathing out, scanning the body, noticing any any discomfort, any distress, any tension or heaviness. Just noticing whatever is there, but particularly noticing anything that feels constricted or tight. And if you do find something in your body in this moment, any tension, any tightness, any heaviness, take a moment and just allow that sensation in your body, allow it to be there. Give it full permission to be. And saying to yourself, I am allowed to feel this. Saying to whatever, whatever sensation you find, it's okay for you to be here. I am here for you. You can stay or go however you want. And the sensation in your body might grow, it might change. And just allowing all of the sensations in the body to be as they are. Whatever is, uh, whatever is present in me, saying, you're welcome to stay. I'm here for you. And then listening and noticing that whatever fear, whatever frustration, whatever distress might be present, noticing that this experience is made out of a desire for wellness and to avoid suffering. Seeing that the fear in me is a longing for safety. Seeing that the grief in me is a longing for ease and connection. The frustration or anger in me is a longing for understanding and respect. And seeing these longings, these wish, these wishes that are present, just agreeing with them and being on their side. If there's a longing in me for safety saying, yes, I too want you to be safe. And if there's a longing for ease or connection, saying yes, 
I too want you to have ease and connection. And if there's a longing for understanding and respect, saying yes, I too want you to feel understood and respected. And breathing in and breathing out. It's an openness to the totality of our experience in this moment. And with one more breath, we'll come back together. Wow, thank you so much for that and for joining me today. Uh, to learn more about Tim's work, you can visit timdesmond.net, T-I-M-D-E-S-M-O-N-D.net, or peercollective.com, P-E-E-R-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-E.com. And a big thank you to all of you who are listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy. May you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.